Okay. Like I said, many of you are in here because uh, you didn't want to go to another session, or some of you are in here because you're actually here to support me. Some of you are here just because maybe you're curious about something I said this morning. There are a variety of reasons that you're here, uh, but whatever they are, I need a few, uh, have a few expectations. The first one is that uh, you're engaged, and that could mean by you know, asking questions and so forth, uh, and that can mean by taking notes, and that can mean by just being a, a very um, attentive listener. Uh, the other expectation is that uh, you wouldn't be a distraction to your neighbor. I know it's cramped in here, and I know the heat level is going to go up. So uh, try to stay with it. If you get to the point where you're so heat exhausted that you can't take it any longer, you can always feel free to leave. But I ask if you do leave, leave out the back door rather than the side door because those can be distracting. A word about the um, water fountains in the back. You're welcome to use those if you need to. Uh, anything else uh, is ex you know, is fine. You you can you know treat this as an adult. So you do what you need to do, and I'll do what I need to do. I would ask you that not to, um, if you do have a question, you don't necessarily have to raise your hand, but just practice, as Mr. Smith used to always say, the general art of conversation. Wait till I'm finished. Uh, not, not for the whole thing, but just if I'm in the middle of a sentence, don't interject right away. Just give me the patience to interject where it comes, uh, comes in necessary. A word about yesterday morning. Oh, you can go ahead and start recording, by the way. Uh, a word about yesterday morning. I know that some of the things that I said there were confusing, but at the same time, some things were interesting, and I'm going to try to pull those things together here for us and offer a paradigm for a way to read. Those of you that are in the 11th grade class, ladies here, Corey, anybody else? Mr. McCarter can. Well, man, Mr. Barber, but Mr. Barber hasn't heard this yet. You all experienced this last year. Uh, you remember the cross that had the different paradigms and different spatial-temporal dimensions. That's what we'll be discussing. So this sounds fairly familiar to you, but I think you'll benefit from it nonetheless. That being said, are there any quick logistical questions before I pray and begin? Mr. Clapp, surprise me. Yesterday in yes. lecture. No. I'm sorry. I love you. Go ahead. Yesterday in your lecture, you had touched on the fact that we're individuals unless we support the body of Christ. Yes. Can you give some proof that you're not in the body of Christ? Or can I give you some scientific explanation? I could be happy to do that. If you'll let me pray, I'll do that. Okay? Let's pray. The Lord be with you. Lord, help us to learn. Let me not stand up here as some uh, dogmatic, um, aggressive, uh, tyrannical figure, but rather one who is seeking to understand. And Lord, as Anselma said, we seek... Uh, we seek understanding so that it might enhance our belief. But, Lord, I would pray we don't believe so that we might understand, but we believe that we might experience, as Bernard of Clairvaux had said. Credo ut experiar, Lord. May we believe such that we might experience something different. May we have hope for the future of change. May we innovate. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, let me answer Drew's question, and I'm going to jump back in, because that's where I'm starting. Thank you, Drew. You read the cue card. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mr. Gwynn, if you'll take care of that, Mr. DiLorenzo. Um, I said yesterday that you're not a buoy in the middle of the ocean. Okay? I basically said, who, uh, Ms. Granger, um, you're not just a – I'm going to – sorry, you're in the front seat. Okay. Um, you're not just a you that's kind of floating out there independent of influences. And the simplest thing that I can do to prove that to you is to demand that you tell me where you are before any of your experiences. What is the you that is cut off from every external input? What is it? Uh, Immanuel Kant, you know, is an enemy of mine, uh, but is a figure in modern philosophy that suggested that the purest form of action was one that was independent of any influences. Because man's goal was to be moral, and to be moral meant to do something that was completely compelled by freedom. Okay? The problem that Immanuel Kant faced is, what in the world is that? So you know Immanuel Kant said your greatest duty is? You have a guess? Anybody have a guess? Yeah? Okay, to do what? You do, what duty do you have? Anybody want to guess? You have duty to duty. What does that mean? I don't know. But when you cut off every influence and you say, let's start with the me, the individual, what is that? 
You might say, well, my individuality is my, my taste. Tell me where those started, right? Uh, tell me where those began and where they end. Tell me where the influence of a parent begins and ends. Tell me where a memory begins and ends. What's my memory, really? Because three of us experience the same thing and don't tell it the same way, right? And so my point here is just experientially, just reflecting on our own experiences, we quickly recognize that we are not just an it. We are beings made. If we did not believe that, we could not believe in justification, we could not believe in regeneration, and we could not believe in sanctification. We couldn't believe in those things that we hold most dear. If I can't change, if I'm a me, if I'm a starting point, then how does one change? Well, one changes because we're always changing. The question is, in what direction and towards whom? Does that make sense so far? Anybody want to follow up there? Because I want to jump forward. Okay. Um, we often reduce ourselves um, as either um, – this is from a previous slide that I'm, I'm not referencing. We reduce ourselves and history – as either we reduce ourselves to be passive participants or sole proprietors of meaning. The slide before this talked about history. We normally think about history, space, time as these really objective things, right? How do we think of what are the two things that history has in terms of time? Well, I think of time in terms of history along what two things? Think of narratives. Narratives have a blank, blank, and blank. What is a narrative? Yes, what do we call those? A beginning, middle, and end, right? We think of time as this progressive thing that we're looking back on. We think of it as a passive thing. We don't think of time as something that we dwell in and are participating in. Right? We, we think about it as a fixity. And in the natural sciences, we think of space the same way. We think of space as a domain that we just kind of operate within. It's this big black open thing that we just kind of float around in. But in reality, neither time nor space is like that. In fact, Einstein said otherwise, that there are these two intimately interconnected things that are constantly confluent, right? What do I mean by that? Or interpenetrating or co-constitutive. Come on, I'm throwing out some difficult words here. Somebody try it. Co-constitutive. What does it mean to constitute something? Make. So what does co-constitutive mean? Yeah, they make each other. That's exactly right. Space and time mutually define one another. This is Einstein. This isn't me. Okay? Right? So we think of space and time that way. But we also think of ourselves like it's these passive little just its. We're just its among a bunch of other its. And what I began to say yesterday was, no, you're not. You are part of, I'm a part of Grace Anne's life. Grace Anne is a part of my life. I am only as I relate to her. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's why you grieve when you lose people. You lose you in some senses. You become different. You change. You morph. You're cut. You're wounded. You're scarred. You grow. You, heaven forbid, evolve. Okay? You adjust. If we didn't believe this, we couldn't be married. I can tell you that. We wouldn't have children. We would have no hope. And Rosenstock says, if we're going to not just submit ourselves to these objective understandings of time and space, we need a new paradigm, a new way to think about reality. What if we thought about space and time converging at this middle point, and even my understanding as a person converging at this middle point? Well, is that anything new? That sounds new agey, right? Mr. Bruno's going to get me. It's not new agey. This is the Christian narrative. In him we live and move and have our being. For him and by him and through him all things were made. Behold, I make all things new. Behold, this is your mother and this is your brother. All of reality is bound up in one moment, period. And it's Christomorphic. What does that mean? Yeah, but what do I mean by Christomorphic? Not... Christocentric would mean Christ-centered. What does Christomorphic mean? Yes, it's shaped like Christ. It's shaped by him. The form of reality is shaped by the centrality of the, Christ, uh, of the Christological narrative. It is because of his life, death, and resurrection and ascension that all things cohere and have their being. Now, if you're a seventh grader, you're going, 
I maybe is, is philosophy of science still available? Can I get back into uh, reading literature like a professor? Yes, if you need to go, go. But if you're willing to commit to this and have a little fortitude, I think you might find it fruitful. What Rosenstock says is we're not we're not just these single buoys out in the middle of the ocean. Remember yesterday I talked about the multiformity of a person, that you're sort of bound up in other things. You're bound up in a three, you're bound up in an infinite, you're bound up in a dual, and you're bound up in a singular as an artist. And the reason I bring this up is the following. Our understanding of man, look at the three things I just talked about. These three things I've talked about are all issues of reality. Right? Do you understand what I mean by reality? I hope you do. Okay, I, I get that Drew gets that. Does anybody else get this? Reality is, is, what is, is. Even Bill Clinton got that, right? What's the meaning? It depends on what the meaning of is, is. Is that what his famous objection was in his court case? We're talking about reality here. What does this have to do with our studies here? Simply put, if we change our paradigm, the way we see things about reality, we might change the way we're interpreting books. We might change the way we're interpreting events that occur in these historical circumstances. Instead of seeing time like this and man like this as a little dot floating down it and space as this black domain, that's kind of how we think of it. What if we put them all together and they all did this? They all converged on one another like that. And that this center, this Christomorphic center made more sense. Now, while that might sound ludicrous and philosophically problematic for you, I would argue that it's deeply Christian. This is exactly what it means for Christ to renew all things. This is why you, you know why you have such a problem thinking about what happened to people before Jesus? Well, Mr. Garner, what about those people before Jesus? Were they saved? Well, why do you think that? Because your notion of time looks like this. What if your notion of time looked like that? That is, Mr. Garner, now that is scary. Then explain to me why the New Testament writers talk like that. All things live and move and have their being in him. For him and by him. Without him, nothing was made. Right? What I'm saying here is, Everything that exists is what we know reality to be is bound up in this one God-man. Now, I'm taking this from Eugen Rosenstock-Husey, who was a, uh, a Jewish immigrant philosopher and um, had some Christian sentiments. And he's not necessarily overtly as Christian as I'm going to be. But what he said was, we need a new way to think about reality. And he put it in the image of a cross. Now, not necessarily because he wanted to make this beautiful Christian symbol, but because he wanted to take these dimensions and put them together. And I want to show you that if we understand reality a little bit differently as this convergence of all these different dimensions, it opens up new ideas for us. And last year I told the 11th grade students that if we thought this way, we might see books a little bit differently. Instead of seeing books along this chronological line, here, here's Okay, let me just rag on omnibus a little bit, right on camera, okay? The way we approach history right now, where omnibus approaches things, is we need to read a whole bunch of books and then figure out which ones were good and bad, right? You read Gilgamesh, you read Genesis. Okay, Gilgamesh was here time-wise, and Genesis was right here time-wise. That one's bad, that one's good. And we just go down the line, following a historical story. But... but Doing that, we cut out big chunks of history and don't understand big components. We do that scientifically, right? We say, can science explain this big domain? Oh, we'll let that part be true, but that part, mm -mm. no, sir. Right? And it's all this like rigid calculus to figure out what is in and what is out. But what if we could take everything in reality, bend it all together, and say, oh, I see how this relates to each other in a different way. Okay? Anybody lost or want to ask a question so far? I'll simplify it for you. So far, we're saying this, man, time, and space. We, we think of them one way. We probably, we could, not probably or should. We could think of them differently, and it might open up some doors to us. So Rosenstock said, you know what, if we thought about it differently, we would realize that this axis right here represents space. And this axis right here represents time. 
And instead of thinking of time and space as these two lines or this domain, let's think about them all together. And if we do that, we can look at the literature and the revolu political revolutions of history and the customs of history, and all of a sudden, they gain a new light. Does that make sense? So what? the same way Newton saw this and said gravity, and Einstein saw this, and he said time and space were bending. Do you understand what I mean by that? Okay. Gravity, as Newton perceived of it, there was this thing called absolute space, like an empty vacuum, like this empty domain in which things move. They collided. That's where we get the laws of physics, right? A body in motion stays in motion and so forth. But that assumes there's a certain field, like an empty sock, and the marbles are kind of rolling around on the inside of the sock. But Einstein said, no, they're not. Gravity is not just a force that's happening inside of a planet pulling on things. Gravity is the fact that the sun is so stinking heavy, it's like it's sitting on top of a cloth, like a paper towel, and it's pulling time and space, and that's causing the ball, like at the mall, when you put that coin on that thing at the mall, to roll around it, like that. So where one person said, okay, you have this thing and that thing, and there's some force combining them. The other one said, mm-mm, there's this huge interconnection of space and time that's causing them to relate to one another. Same phenomena, same planet, same sun, totally different way of seeing it. Does that make sense? So all I'm telling you is we're not getting rid of space and time, but what if we pull these things together? We might think of history differently. We might think of cultures differently. We might think of revolutions differently. Yes, sir? That's where I'm going. How about we look at them different? Okay. He said if we looked at it this way and we had time and space on a vert or, or on a uh, intersection, we would say he says let's look at the literature and the styles of thinking that emerge based on these dimensions. He said if you go down this line, what he wanted for, was for all of these to cohere together. But let's look at the emphases that these dimensions point to. The language of space that goes down this way is subjective space. Okay. Think of this going outward, this is going out, and this is going in, okay? So, let's take, for example, literature that is very inward-focused. The language of the literature is going to be more subjective. Does this make sense so far? Poetry, your diary, your journal. You talk about me. What me? Certainly not my flesh or my armpits. That was just for fun. But like my feelings. That's inner space. Right? The language is very subjective. Now, look at what I'm about to do here. I'm telling you to think about life and reality differently if these two are positioned like that. You know what it means to be, you know what I mean by subjective? Like it's focused with the subject. I walk the chicken. Weird. I walk the chicken. That's even possible. Did any of you walk chicken? Anybody ever walk a chicken in here? Anybody have chicken? You have chickens? You have chickens? Okay. Um, when you walk this, when you walk it, let me know. Um, the language of I, me, what I feel is subjective language. On the pattern of history like this, we might find literature along the way that uses subjective language. But we'll try to say, oh, well, this is a bad piece of literature because it focuses on this, and then this came after it, and then this came after it. What he's saying is, don't look at it as it's going along a chronological process. Look at it as one dimension. That poetry focuses on one dimension of language, not all four dimensions. Do you see the difference? Okay. He said, down here on the bottom, you have subjective language. You'll, I think you'll find this fascinating. He said, also, what orientation does the, this dimension focus on? It focuses on the inner person. Now, why am I bringing this up? Let's go back to this line. When you cross over literature or events, you're not, you're not just saying, oh, here's where it happened, and here's historically where it happened, and spatially where it happened. You're saying that piece of literature emphasized, that's a book, emphasized this dimension. And your criticisms are no longer this was good or bad, but it was incomplete because there are other dimensions that it ignored. Did you catch that? 
So what, what Rosenstock wants us to do is take all these different fields and dimensions and put them all together because Rosenstock's point is the following. You can only really change the world and reality when you see it correctly. If you keep looking at it like this, you will change nothing because Newton did not give us the atomic bomb. Kennison did. Joke. Einstein did. You can only really change the world when you're looking at it from the proper angle. And Rosenstein's point is, as long as we keep looking at lines, we're missing it. Once we start looking at dimensions, then we start to see it. And we see that literature and things like that that are more subjective in nature focus on one dimension. And they're inner in orientation. Well, what kind of literature might this be? I've already said it. Guess? Throw it out. Okay, well, somebody guess. Poetry, right? Or religious literature, or what they call, what the Greeks would have called, lyric literature. So when you're reading through a Greek omnibus text, you realize that the Greeks focused on this dimension. Their perspective on reality was dimensional, not multidimensional. We had the distinct advantage of looking at a plethora of different places and spaces and times and looking at a multidimensional universe. The goal of omnibus in your reading is not to say, let's like this one over expense of the other ones. Your goal is to take all of reality because you're the same people that claim Christ rules all things. Well, if he rules all things, that means every dot on that line. And it means every dimension here. Because Rosenstock said, the Christ, along with all of humanity, is stretched out on the cross of reality. Yes? Um, you, said, you said that we shouldn't look at it on a line. It's like this is bad. Mm -hmm. We should look at it on the plane. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have this dimension. What do you mean it doesn't have this dimension? I meant that it has multiple dimensions. Look at that text. Instead of looking at it on a line, it's something to be discarded or overcome. Well, the Greeks didn't have it right. We learned later in history that this was better. The Greeks are, it's not about looking at it as a line. It's about looking at what the Greeks did in terms of dimensions in relationship to other dimensions so that we as people can look at it more carefully and if we're truly going to change our reality, we have to look at the things in our culture that emphasize certain dimensions. Well, what emphasizes this, right? Facebook. Right? You don't just look at Facebook as a cultural phenomenon that you're going to pass over. You look at what it says about reality. What it's saying about reality is it's bending the cross towards that dimension. And as a result, it's deformed. It's deforming reality quite literally. I know that sounds crazy, but that's Rosenstock's claim, and I think there's something profound about this. Anybody have an idea of person in mood? That means like what grammatical person you see in this kind of dimension. Exactly. You're going to see a lot of first person and subjunctive stuff. If I do this, then this will not. That would be hypothetical. Subjunctive would be what? It would be if then. Yeah, I was right. Okay. So you're going to see a lot of subjunctive possibilities, you know, if thens, conditionals, etc. What fields cohere in this dimension? These fields, literature, arts, philosophy, psychology, emphasize this dimension of reality. Now, some of us are prejudiced, right? We're prejudicial. We prefer this. But it should teach us something about us at the same time. We sure do like us if we like these things. Um, for all of you. Um, I'm there too. We're all fascinated by psychology because we're really interested in ourselves. Um, this dimension also, in the religious aspect, focuses on, this is really cool, he put Christian terms in here and he said, the emphasis in Christianity in this dimension is personal redemption. This characterizes our place in East Tennessee in America. Most of our Christian discourse is going to be about your personal salvation. Now, just because in class I might make a joke about this, does not mean it's not important, and it doesn't mean that it's not true and real. It just means that we've emphasized it to such a degree that we have deformed the Christian narrative because we've favored only one dimension over the rest of it. Do you understand what I mean by that? We, if we're in this camp, and we're emphasizing the subjective and the inner, we should wake up and say, oh, I only participate in reality via one dimension. And our... Social, uh, social breakdown. I, I say stage and experience because Rosenstock will say one of these things comes first and one of these things comes last as you develop. Um, but the breakdown, remember how I have the virtues and the vice on the cultus virtuti? Well, if this is the focus here, the inner person, the subjective, and so forth, the failure, if you do this too much, if you bend it so much, you get anarchy. That's what Rosenstock was saying. Is if you only have this one dimension on reality, 
you tend towards anarchy and you think, nah, uh you know, us in East Tennessee, we do focus on personal redemption and, and the and the inner person and so forth. Yes, but we're also libertarians, most of us. You don't want rule. You don't want anybody to tell you what to do. And that's not just you. That's the over-mountain men. If you know anything about Appalachian history and revolutionary era. I mean, it's like Tennesseans holding their muskets and, you know, backing down you know, British figures on the top of a mountain because, by gosh, you're not taking their moonshine. Right? You're going to tend towards... Anarchy. At the expense of control, at the expense of unity, you will preserve the inner person. Now, catch what I'm saying. Again, what I'm saying is, I'm not telling you this is fact. I'm telling you this is a paradigm, a way to see reality. And Rosenstock's point is, if we change the way we saw reality, we might change our ability to effect change. Well, let's look at another one. So, oh, I just disconnected there. Let's look at another one. Let's go to the top. Outer space is more objective, looking at the world around you. So what kind of orientation? I just said it. Uh-oh. My thing is... I hit the space bar there for you. Just, you just needed to do it once, but that's okay. You don't get the outer world, outside space. Oh, by the way, and I don't think I have it here, uh, he also had... Well, maybe it's at the very end. He had uh, cultures that were associated with this. Anybody have a culture that they think might go with this kind of mood? Well, that's true. But he's a deeply, more uh, more deeply historical. Yeah, he says Greece. Um, because they were the founders. You're probably right. I mean, Renaissance definitely is trying to appeal to uh, Greco-Roman ideas. Um, he would say Greece is like this. And he said, oh, do you mind have a guess what this one would be? They focused on the outer world. They're the first ones that told us to look at the stars, he says. That's close. Egyptian. He says, this is Egypt. Egypt is the outside. Greece is the inside. And, you know, he he, he points this out and says this is uh, this is their orientation. Anybody guess what kind of literature what might be associated with this dimension? That's actually a good idea, but that's not the case. Because think about what history suggests. That dimension. History is going to be back here. Nope. Pardon? You're very close. Uh, that would probably be down here. It's actually, uh, it's prosaic literature, but it's also, it should be scientific. Fields should be the one I'm looking for. It's more scientific and objective in nature. Even though they're highly mythological, they're very concerned about the outside world. Mathematics, natural sciences, economics. And the person in mood of this kind of dimension is he, she, they, it. It's indicative. It's about that thing out there. Now look, these are two different dimensions. Here's the thing. Do we not normally see these in competition? Right? We think Christianity is down here in personal redemption and science can't explain it. Those are just two dimensional components. And what Rosenstock is saying is we're going to grossly deform what we think about Christianity and literature or anything like that if we're only getting one dimension. Or if we're thinking that the dimensions are antithetical or in competition or are hostile to one another. They should collaborate. They should cohere. Um, why are the going out they all That's a great question. I think you might have asked me that the first time we went through this. You you probably should say at some level that they go towards the center. Uh, I'm going to say, from a Christian standpoint, maybe not Rosenstock standpoint, that it just suggests the infinite nature of their uh, reach. Uh, rather than being entropic or like, all converging in one place, like disappearing like a ball of light. Rather, it expands. So it's multiplication, dominion. Um, that's a great question. Coming from the same center and returning to it, an alpha and omega of sorts. Yeah, maybe you want to see it circular like this. That's fine. Um, maybe Mr. Kinnickson can give us a good geometric uh, alternative to this. It's a great question, something I'll, I'll, I'll consider. Okay, so there's your, your literary styles. So what kind of religious aspect? This outside focuses on the world's redemption. So you're more uh, theistic evolutionary type people or maybe even political uh, theological kind of people who are concerned about the salvaging of the outside world, the value of the material world. It, it is interesting here. Mr. Bruno is a very aggressive, um, how should I say this? He's a very Judaic thinker when it comes to um, the Bible. 
And he's very concerned about the preservation of the material body and the material world. You know, he's in that camp of uh, heaven is not a place out there. It's heaven on earth. It's the restoration of the earth and all this other kind of stuff, which I think is a great thing. But he says, he will continue to tell you that I believe that because the Hebrews believe that, which is interesting because where do the Hebrews spend most of their time? In Egypt, right? Hit the space bar again for me. I think I'm in trouble with connection. The social breakdown to this, if you're fighting for the world's redemption and the outside, you're vulnerable to war. Makes sense, doesn't it? If this is the only dimension you focus on and you want to, and the only territory disputed is the material territory, it's going to naturally lend itself to conflict. Yeah, war. Here's what's difficult for us. We live fragmented. We actually believe both of these things. What we fail to do as Christians is believe them together. How do they cohere? How do they join? I used to have a professor that used to say, we believe things that are true enough, but not big enough. It's not enough to believe this is true and this is true. We need something big enough to believe that they both exist together, that we be, need both dimensions. I think it's a, what I think this is is what we call a heuristic, which means I think it's a teaching tool to open our eyes that we've been one-sided. Perhaps. I think it's a way of saying, hey, look, we've got some issues. Mr. Barber. It's okay. You said in the article, the article, through the feature of quality. How would that be relevant to this? Through the feature of quality? Explain what you mean by that. Hit space bar, Isaac. Resolving this conflict by making the assumption that everything we do that we think is good Oh, uh, how would that relate to this? Um, gosh, without without reading it directly, I would say that uh, if quality, well, I think Rosenstock would put it on this too and say, well, quality can be interpreted here as a, a subjective sort of orientation or a value or a form, even platonically. It can be quality in a very Hegelian sense or a very scientific sense that quality is a uh, a particular numerical ratio that exists in a material thing. Um, it would be hard for me to answer that without knowing exactly what he means by quality. But I would say Rosenstock's response would be, quality is not outside of this, but is inside of this. Quality is, is defined by dimension that is preferred. And I think from a rhetoric standpoint, this is what I would argue, and this is what I would teach, um, is that there's a feedback loop, clearly, of quality, right? Here's quality, and here's what we perceive quality to be. We, we breed it, right? We make it, and, we, and then we believe it's there. And it, we keep feeding it to ourselves. Um, it's like Soylent Green. Wasn't that a book you guys had to read in Ingram's class where they are eating people? What was it? It's a movie. Oh, it's a movie. Okay. Uh, when people died off, they put them in some kind of chopper and fed it to people. Um, it's weird. Um, but the point is that we're either on this feedback loop, we're sort of self-consuming. So I, that would be my... That would be my response, but that it might be an inadequate one based on your reading. So I would defer to you for further conversation. You mentioned as Christians that we need to uh, join the objective and the subjective mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. How can you uh, expand on that? Sure, uh, sure. Eucharist, prayer. I mean, is that enough or no? Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, of course we do. Of course we do. I mean, think about the big battles that we have in churches about whether the Eucharist is transubstantiation or consubstantiation. We're trying to reconcile a material property that's in front of us in the belief that there's something that matters about eating this bread and drinking this juice or wine. Um, you drink wine, don't you guys? Okay. Um, or this wine and what I feel on the inside and whether I'm truly receiving it or not. The Eucharist is even split, right? Some people would say, no, it matters that you take from the common cup. Some people are saying all that matters is how you receive it in your heart. So much so that you don't even need the elements. Right? So much so that you don't even need church. Really, 
I mean, how many times, you guys are in college, have I heard people in my college say, well, I'm not going to church this week. My church is the mountains, right? I take my guitar to the mountains and I look at the creek and, you know, strum my guitar. Or better yet, I meditate, which is sleeping. And that's inner. And so, yeah, I'm saying that there are components of the Christian tradition that are in conflict with one another because we don't understand how they're dimensions of the same reality. That help? Good. All right, good. Let's move on. The language, this direction, is narrative language. And clearly, you can see what this is. If this is outer and this is inner, this is... Pardon? No, back to the middle. Look at what the look at the line. Thank you, Ms. Meister. It's that. Hit that for me. It's the past. It's past time. What kind of literature do you see in past time? Mr. Johnson, if you'll keep tapping for me when I hit the board, if you'll tap for me. You see epic. Ah, oh, stories of the past. Right? You get Exodus. You get Genesis. You get the, well, strangely, you get the Iliad. That's an earlier stage. That's sort of a, uh, archaic Greece. You get epics. You get stories of the past. What kind of person in mood? Go ahead. You get a we. How fascinating is this? Just look at the person in mood. We talk a lot like this. We bend most of reality this direction. Some people do this. Not very many of us. It's, we're learning more and more as a school to talk like this. And don't you see it? The more we talk like this, the more we read like this, and the more we think like this. Does that make sense? When we talk about we, think about what happens every morning since you've been here and we pray, and Mr. Coward talks about God's faithfulness to us in the past 10 years, and he tells an epic narrative of the growth of the school, and we use we language. Us, people, a collective who have experienced reality in a certain way because of a past event. And what I'm saying here is, if we preference one over the other, we're just, and this is what Rosenstein is saying, is that we're distorting time. And the problem, here's the problem, Drew, and it seems to be like all of us and the me and you are talking here, but I'm gonna, I'm, you're asking questions, I appreciate that. Here's what he's saying. If we do that and we just live over here, we can't change anything. Because the only way we can think is tradition, past, and epic. We need inner, outer, and future to really do something different. Because every act that we perform contains those dimensions. When we do a piece of art or write a piece of music or give a political speech, it should contain all of those dimensions. That's the only way reality will adjust. And that's assumed only because the Christ has done that very thing. The key event to history was multidimensional. The key of the crucifixion and resurrection was multidimensional. So if we're going to participate in him, if we're going to live in him, if we're going to be co-laborers with him, the only thing we can build that's going to affect any change is going to be one that's multidimensional. And if we don't build things that are multidimensional, we will be vulnerable to these breakdowns. If we build only worlds that are concerned with the outside, we will be inducing war. If we build worlds that are only concerned with the inside, we will be producing anarchy, not true change. Yeah, reality. Exactly what I'm saying. What are the fields of study for this? History. Law. Why law? Why would law be concerned with past? To, right, what do we call that? That's very true. Very true. Yes, we call it case law. There are two kinds of law in judicial practice, jurisprudence. There is statutory law, which is the rules. And there's case law. Case law means how it's been interpreted in the... Thank you. Right? So law is in that same bracket. In fact, one of the most Hebraic law codes includes epic, doesn't it? What's the most important Hebraic law code that we can think of? What do we call it? Vegas. <laughs> that, sorry, okay, that's true. Uh, we're talking about one particular set of ten things. We call them the Decalogue. What are the first lines of the Decalogue? That's an epic. I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right? It's epic. It's we. This is what we should do. This is who we are. John, did you have a question? Go ahead, Isaac. For that, this law, is common sense? Is common sense put in there? And then we know from... It's common sense that we... And then that's common to all of us? 
-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, common sense is a really screwy term because what we think that means is this. It's objective and outer. But what you're telling us is common sense actually means this. It's what we all believe because of our shared history. And you should be able to do things that violate quote-unquote common sense. But nobody wants to be the village idiot. Was what, idiot, what does idiot mean? Right. Exactly. You're singular. Idiomatic. Idiom. A singularity. Right? Nobody wants to be an idiot. We all want to be common sense. It changes the way we think about the terms, doesn't it? Right? It, you're, you're right. Yeah. This is dominating in common sense. And, and it's usually in patriotic language, too. Right? We don't do this. And we retell the narrative to ourselves over and over. But what you're saying is, you're going, wait a second, I experience all of these. That's exactly right. We just don't experience them in union. We can't figure out how they go together. We all believe in this. We all know that the past is important. We all know the natural world. God has something to do with it. We can't figure out how they all join together. All right. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, this is so good. So Rosenstock says, uh, the religious aspect so this kind of thinking, this dimension, is a focus on the Father. But you can see that, can't you? Patriarchal narrative, the epic of the, of the heroes, the fathers, and consequently a focus on the Trinitarian Father as the RK, the beginning, the eternal past. Very masculine, this world. And what's the breakdown? Decadence thinking too highly of our past. You know, I, I appreciate what Isaac said in the conversation this morning when he said about talking about classical school, very easy to be decadent and have them, these students just say how great everything is. But he said, there's some bad stuff too. There's some bad stuff too. That's avoiding the decadence. That's recognizing not doing too much of singular one-dimension thinking. All right, let's get to the fun part. Oh, this is great. So, the future. Let's look at it. What's the language of that direction? It's imperative speech. It's command. Do it. Go. Be. Yes. Not exactly. It. The present is the real. Think of it this way, Mr. Cook. Imagine, rather than this being static, if I can make an image that was fluctuating and moving and vibrating. At its very core, it's vibrating. It's not there. Because it would appear that the goal would be to find a vertex and boom, land there and be perfect. It's like people say about balance, right? you got to have a balance in your life. You know, you don't want this extreme or that extreme. But, as one of my professors used to always say, and you guys have heard me say this before, balance, because the deck of life is always shifting, Balance is what? It's very close. It's very close. Yes, because the deck of life is always shifting. You know, about the deck of life, like on a boat. Balance is nothing more than momentary synchronicity. What is synchronicity? What does it mean for two things to be synchronous? Yep. Yeah, working together at the same time. Does that boat ever stop if we're doing this? No. Balance is just that moment to where it leans this way. You know, like giving you all ski. Right? It's that moment where you push. That balance lasts for a second, right? And then the ground changes underneath and you push the other direction. So balance is an active thing. It's not finding the middle ground and staying there because the ground moves. And I say this over and over again. I'm building a house right now, and this was the case even before I did. I love when people use the idea of a foundation. Let's just get to the foundation right here and build outwards. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the foundation moves. You build a house to prepare for it to move. You cut holes in the wall so that the water can pour in certain ways. You cut vents in it because you know good, good and well in less than three months when the house, quote-unquote, settles, there will be cracks where there once were none. Not because you failed to do anything, because that is the nature of being in a space of reality that is never the same. It, and it moves extremely slowly. Extremely slowly. But it moves. So what we're looking for, Mr. Cook, is not a center place to stop, but we're looking at how to deal with the flux. How to deal with the fact that everything is sort of adjusting. And I think that that thing is not a thing at all, but remains a person. 
The objective for us is not to look for a set of codes that the Christ lays out in order to settle down and sit still. Which, as you've heard me say before, if you're still, you're what? Yes. You're dead. Look at a child. You know what you have to teach a baby to do? You have to teach it to control the motion. Not to stop it, but to direct it. That's what you're doing. You want them to walk this direction rather than like this. Sitting still might be physically still, but you want their heart motion to move towards desire or attention. Attention is motion. When I follow your words across the memory maps of my brain, I'm moving. Right? My point here is nobody is sitting still. Nobody's sitting still. We're just moving very carefully and purposefully. And Rosenstock's point is, is if we don't think multidimensionally, we will not move carefully. Okay. Decadence. All right. It's imperative speech. Orientation. This makes sense, right? The future. Okay. No, hold on. This is so much fun. Um, don't go anywhere. Okay. Does anybody have a guess of what kind of literature would be oriented to, towards the future? That's interesting. He doesn't say that, but that's a possibility. I like that. Maybe science fiction? Sci-fi again? Romance. No. Boo. It's a space bar. Drama. Now you think, why? Because drama is the space of innovation. You get a script, and then you do what? You make it your own. You improvise. You ad-lib. Every performance is a different performance. Every narrative reading is the same narrative. Every drama is new. Drama is the space of the future. This is why if we're not doing drama, we have a warped sense of reality. Look at these two objective things, the past and the outside. If all we focus on a school is learn the story, know the facts about the outside, not only will we be arrogant, but we'll be a warlike people. And that sounds a lot like what some of us say when we find someone who disagrees with us. We get rid of them. Always believing that our perspective is full. Or if all we do is teach this and not a memory and a tradition, and we get cut off from our tradition, we'll be anarchic, self-focused, disinterested in the future and the past, just in our abysmal center. The dramatic. Person in mood? You. That's the, that's the language used in the language of the future in the language of the dramatic, in the dimension of the future. You. You are there. Because you are a future to me. Do you get that? When I talk to Alex Camden, I am a spatial phenomenon. Okay? I know it sounds weird, but think about this. Where is I? Here? Here? How about now? Right? What if I lost my arms? Seriously. Am I here? What about when the phone is in her ear and I'm saying, I really like the show. Where's I? Somewhere in the digital ether? Do you understand what I mean here? I is a spatial phenomenon. It's a weird one. And then we talk about our past. We share stories. When I say we, we're always talking about something we did. Right? They is talking about them there, not an addressee. What I mean by an addressee? someone you are addressing. You, when you're encountering a you, you're encountering possibilities. You're encountering that which could be because you are not them. They are not you. So the dramatic is a dialogue. It's really cool. What fields focus on this? Isaac, can you hit that for me? Politics and religion focus on the future. Pardon? Weathermen? <laughs> He's right. All right, hit it again. What religious aspect? Holy Spirit. Uh, Yakima Fiore, which a monk, uh, said that uh, the future was the domain of the Spirit. He called it actually like a third kingdom, um, which was interesting. Um, but look at him, right? Uh, you focus on the world, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. I think there's a part in our Christian tradition, truthfully, we really struggle to appreciate the Spirit. We're so Christocentric and so fatherly focused 
that we're not really sure what to do with the spirit, I think primarily because we're not really sure what to do with the dramatic. We're not sure to do what, what to do with the future. Yeah. Get it again, Isaac. Why is the spirit put on the future? Because it's a, it's a translation. This is really cool. You know what Rosenstock said about originality? Originality and ideas are always just translations. So when you translate into the future, you're using the tongues of the future. New speech occurs. New tongues. New voices. The Spirit is the domain of mission. I and the Father are one. I will leave you another helper. I will leave you a comforter. You will go. Go into, the, go into Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth proclaiming my name. And whatever you do, do it in my name. And I will send you power, right? You will do greater things than I. In what way? In the Spirit. What is the book of Acts about? The book of Acts is about mission and expansion and growth into the new. And it's all via power of the Spirit. Spirit is the transfigured cloud that dwells on the sun when he is seen by the disciples in a new, beautiful, possible future, in his holy glory. The glory of the Christ when he comes again in Revelation will be the future, and that future will be in that transfigured cloud. That cloud goes before us and sets things for us, but it's also a cloud of unknowing. It's a place of mystery. It's a place of possibility. Does that answer your question or no? Hint at it at least. Did you say that... Uh in the sense, um, after Jesus left uh, for the first time, and the Spirit came, is there a line there where before that, Spirit is the future, and now we are in the future, with the Spirit? I don't know if I would say there's a line, but yes. I would answer, the second part, I would say yes. There's, we are in the future. Yes. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? Like popular culture hangs on to some of these dimensions too. We're talking about a religious sense, but you know, this is Star Trek, right? You know what I mean? You know, they, they focus on, on different elements and, and they borrow and things like that. What we're looking for is the realization that Christ stretched out on the cross of reality and in his bosom and in his side and in his hand is every other ounce of humanity. We too are stretched out on this cross and we would betray the sufferings of reality and the coherence and clarity of reality if we only chose one dimension over the other. But because, as St. Paul says, some are hands and some are feet, some are eyes and some are noses. Well, it's like saying some are head and some are feet, some are left hand, some are right hand. If we only choose one hand over the other, we get a warped sense of what it means to be us, a warped sense of what it means to be in the real, a warped sense of what it means to be human. Because the only way to be human is to be like the Christ. The Christ is the one in which the full glory of the Father dwells in the Son as he comes into the world. Does that make sense? That's pretty abstract and... Yeah, but that, to me, that's, that's not me making something up. That's me pulling the whole Bible together and saying that's what's happening. The inside, the outside, the past and the future, all in one moment. All in one moment. Otherwise, we could not say what we say about Jesus. We call him Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. He is higher than the highs, but his equality with God, with God is not something to be grasped, but he made himself lower than the angels. He was the outer and the inner, the higher and the lower. He is the future of all things in which everything comes to cohere and find him. He is the path of all things. He is their origin and their destination. What else are we talking about? You know, than just everything coming together in the God-man. And that sounds like I'm preferencing son, but I'm talking about the God-man as he is a conjoining of all these things in that moment of crucifixion. There's more. Hold on. Mr. Enlo, go ahead. No, I'm going to write some stuff down while you're asking your question. I'm going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. give you a full schematic of what it looks like to map one on the other? No. But yes, definitely I think that's possible. He offers these other four that I never wrote on here, but I thought they were really fascinating as they related to school. Sports cohere with this kind of outer world in this place of competition and material possession and the he, she, it, they, the statistics of sports, and they verge on the uh, social breakdown of war because they emulate it. 
um, which is interesting. So, well, and that's not saying sports is bad. Don't get me wrong, okay? Because I know I, I kick sports in the teeth all the time. But, for lack of a better analogy, I'm sounding warlike anyway. Um, but I'm not saying sports is bad. I'm just saying that if that's the only dimension in which we think of reality, we are going to be subject to these kind of interpretations. Ceremony is the, is the feature of this. Um, study is this, right? And creativity and making and art. This is why in rhetoric class I'm so bent on this. Uh, trying to, because I, I really do think that this is the part that we miss, and that's not just because I'm a pneumatological kind of minded person or because I like politics. It is part of that, but I really do think that, that we really struggle to figure out how to think about this because it's so open ended. It's not something we can control or manipulate like our insides and outsides and our past. The future is about possibility. All right, well he says these things happen in a certain order. Let's see what they are. Hit the base bar. That one happens second. You would think, do we start with our inner self? How do we get all this together? He says that happens second. Next, I think it's the third one's going to come up. Oh, I'm sorry, these are out of order. So put them all in there. Really cool. He actually says this is the first thing we need to do in order to pull all the cross of reality together. We experience this first, you. And he actually uses this weird kind of childlike thing. First thing a child knows is you, mom. Not mom, not he, not he, not she, you. They know you. To experience across reality, the first place we experience it is as a you. The second place we experience it is as an I, because if I'm not you, I'm I. I and thou. Then we experience I and thou becomes we. We share a past. Mom, remember when? Do you get this? And then, only then do we start thinking about he, she, they as external figures, once we're exposed to more as a we. Now, it's a lot. It's a whole lot. I'll just say this. If you go away from here and forget all of this, I'm okay with that. Because this is an orientation seminar, and it's not something you're going to be tested on. It's not going to be something that comes up a lot in class. But I would say that if you remember anything, remember to question whether you're in man is in such a manner that it's causing you to distort your understanding of other things. Do you believe things that are big enough, not just true enough, not just true enough. Is it true enough to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Yes. Is it true enough to believe that he died on the cross for us? Yes. Is it true enough to believe that he is coming again? Yes. Is it big enough to believe that... It, it, do we have it big enough to where we can understand why he comes again in order to save us from all things, in order to redeem the whole cosmos for himself, in order to make his name great, and what that has to do with Babylon, and what that has to do with Assyria, and what that has to do with Greece, and what that has to do with Egypt. That's the purpose of a classical education, is to bring all those things under one rubric... And that rubric happens to be the Christ. That's what we're looking for, is the glow of his face reverberating through all of space and time. We're looking for his hands and his feet. If we should say, if we were just like Thomas, if we could just touch your hands and your side, if we could just touch your wounds, hopefully then we would believe. So, let's say it that way. Questions? Mr. Sadler, jump in. So, yesterday you talked about how there's the all in one, the there's the two in the one. And what I'm seeing is that these can represent those, the top being all, the one, the left being three. Great. You got it. You understood. Proud of you. You did it. I don't need to say any more. Other questions? If you walk out of here sufficiently confused, you're not alone. Yep. When would you say this ends? Do you think it ends when Christ, or the whole the whole concept of time and space as it's used here, is it when Christ returns, or would it be, or when is His returning in the judgment? Or is that all? Does that take part of time and space? No, no. And it starts when everybody's divided between. It's interesting that you keep using the terms end and division. Division is a marker of this kind of thinking, and end is a marker of that kind of thinking, not the multidimensionality. This is the symbol that Egyptians used to use for eternity and time. It's that spot where the circle touches the line. And, which is fascinating because, no, there's not an end to it. The whole goal is to be in the space where eternity and time cohere. And the only, the only dimension in which those two things cohere, eternity and time and space and reality, is in, is in, the, is in God which is why he is our chief end and our greatest celebration. So no, there, there's not, I don't think there's a time in which these orientations end. For me, now, I could be wrong. I mean, you, you could easily go to your pastor and say, yeah, I mean, there's a, there will be no more of this or that or so on and so forth. I, you know, I wouldn't want to pick it apart, but if I'm going to say this process of reality stops, no. 
Because that is who God is. I'm not saying he subjects himself to extended space. What I'm saying is he gives this the multidimensional reality such that we can actually experience him. Because if we didn't have the multidimensions, we would be flat or we would be consumed in his light. So the fact that there is multidimensionality at all is a gift, I would say. There might be more than you were asking. but Any other questions? Please, Mr. Garner, it's hot. We want to get out. Can we ever fully reach the perfect intersections? No. I don't think so. I think that's what prayer and contrition is. I think that what we do is to live as Christ and to die as gain. That we share in His sufferings. As St. Paul says, as I have done, you go and do likewise. And what does it mean to share in His holiness? It means to share in His crucifixion. What does it mean to share in His resurrection? Just that. I think what we're doing here is not looking to compete with Christ for space on the cross of reality. It's to find ourselves only there. And I think that's why we're in a perpetual state of contrition and affection. Now, we would obviously say, in the heavenlies, are we going to know God as He infinitely knows Himself? No. That's why the Greeks, like Gregory of Nyssa, would say, we are doing this forever. But it just keeps getting better and better and better and better and better and better. And that sounds nauseating, but only because we think of time like a line. Because we're thinking we're moving past. What about that? What about that? What about that? What if time isn't on the line? Getting better and better and better is more like glowing brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Does that make sense, kind of? So I, I would say no. So does, or, does, uh, does this help us conform to the uh, to Christ and therefore become more like the 